Blog Talk Radio. Good morning out there in Blog Talk Radio land. Happy end of April. Oh, my goodness. You guys are going into May already, and it's a beautiful day here in Georgia. I hope it's gorgeous wherever you are, whatever the weather is. I hope you're enjoying, enjoying your day. To our loyal listeners, I have to say thank you, thank you. 13 years, I, we really appreciate uh you your your loyalty and and the many wonderful guests we uh brought before you and we have another one coming up this morning for those who are just coming across the the dial whether you're listening via iTunes or here blog talk radio or rainbow soul or the many other ways you can listen to off the shelf i just want to welcome you and let you know that you are listening to the winning book radio show off the shelf and again welcome and thank you for joining us, I want to I want to drop this thought into your mind, and this is from Jim Watkins, and it is a river cuts through rock not because of its power, but because of its persistence. But 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 persistence and smart smart persistence, because you can keep doing the wrong thing and not get the the good results you want as well. So so smart persistence, I would add to that. But again, a river cuts through rock not because of its power, but because of its persistence. And again, I add in smart, wise, wise persistence. It's a question I ask you guys: How good of a mystery sleuth are you? Do you think you can figure out who done it? I love Columbo, the TV show. They'll tell you, they'll literally show you what happened, and you get to watch Columbo try to figure out who done it. That's just and something that is very intriguing and interesting to do. Can I figure out what happened or who how this is going to go before it's revealed? And that's one thing I would ask you if you value and appreciate. And the next would be how much you value relationships. Whether it's a, a, a romantic relationship or a relationship between friends, colleagues, or somebody you meet in college, and friends you have with your, your relationships you have with your parents, all of these things shape. They chip away things, false beliefs. They add on things. They change us. If you if you're in a relationship, I say five or more years, you could look back and see just how much you've changed in the way you think or behave since you met that person. If you do value relationships and you like that, who done it? Because there's a murder mystery tucked in the story. I encourage you to get a copy of Love Pour Over Me, and it's an ebook and in print format. And if you don't see it on the bookshelf, just ask the clerk. Just give you orders a copy of Love Pour Over Me by Denise Turney, and they can order a copy for you because it's carried by the largest book distributors in the world. And I encourage you not to be someone who says, "I gotta get that book." You have no idea how often I hear that, but then you never do. You, the only way you're going to really enjoy this story is to actually read the book. So, again, Love Pour Over Me. And I hope you get a copy today and let me know how you enjoyed Love Pour Over Me. And now let's go meet our very special off-the-shelf guests. And for those who've been here with us all these years, they they, they probably are chopping at the bit to see what the guest is going to share this morning, I've learned something from every guest we've had. Now, our special off-the-shelf guest this morning is Mitchell Levy, and he is known as the AHA guy. And Mitchell Levy is the CEO of Think AHA. Over the course of his career, he has twenty. He has had twenty businesses in Silicon Valley, 
and four of his business were in the book publishing industry off-the-shelf listeners. And this is where Mitchell has published more than 800 books. He has written for Entrepreneur and served as chairman of the board of a publicly owned company. He's also provided consulting services to more than 100 companies. You can check Mitchell Levy, and that's L-E-V-Y, out online at MitchellLevy.com, and I'll spell it, M-I-T-C-H-E-L-L, Mitchell, and then L-E-V-Y, so there's three L's, M-I-T-C-H-E-L-L, L-E-V-Y.com, MitchellLevy.com. Welcome to Off the Shelf, Mitchell. <laughs> it's great to be here, Rhonda. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's it, it's good to have you here uh, on Off the Shelf. So so we're we're grateful that we were able to connect this this morning. Now, before we launch into the uh, sh- questions, Mitchell, there are a few questions that I ask every guest who comes on Off the Shelf. Uh, first of all, it's interesting to hear how the different guests respond to these few questions, and secondly, it gives our Off the Shelf listeners some backstory. On our guests, so we're not just jumping in, asking questions to somebody that the listener is like, "Who is this person?" So I like to give a little bit of backstory. So before we go into the questions, can you tell off-the-shelf listeners where you grew up and what life was like for you growing up? Oh, I grew up on the uh, East Coast, uh, born in Brooklyn, raised in New Jersey, and we were a single mom with three kids uh, who was a school teacher. And so we uh, we didn't have a lot in terms of, of money or, or ways or things. And I, I think the, the lesson that mom gave us is that uh, we life was still fantastic and I could do anything I wanted. And so putting putting that sort of structure, that framework in me was a powerful lesson for her and you know, we didn't know that we weren't that we didn't have a lot because mom didn't make it that way, and and so it was. Uh, I mean, you know, the the same struggles everyone goes through when when you're when you're kid period and when you're a kid and and not a lot of money. It's uh, you know you just don't know better. So if we had uh, every Monday night was a hot dog night or Tuesdays were sloppy joes, it, that was fun as a kid because most other kids don't get to do that sort of fun thing. That, that's kind of how life was when I was growing up. Oh, you know what's amazing? For some reason, Anthony Robbins popped into my head. He he had hard experiences, but he used them to really dig in and do a lot of research and do the work to change his life phenomenally, where if you hear about his beginning, you wouldn't think. You'd be like, he's making that up, but but he's not. So it's good when you we we, we hear from people we make excuses who who take those excuses from us because they went on and did some great things with their life, but that your mother planted that belief in you. What did you dream of becoming? You talked about, you know, your mom raising three kids by herself. You didn't have a lot, but you guys had fun, and your mother told you that you put that belief in you, you could do anything. What did you dream of becoming? What did you want to be when you grew up, when you were a kid? You know, it's interesting, and in high school, I was, I was, I think initially I started taking the easy routes and saying, hey, let's do what I like doing. So I love taking uh, photographs. So at some point in time, I thought, oh, maybe I'll be a photographer. And, and what, what ultimately went through my mind is, oh, 
I'll be I'll be capped in terms of what my max even if I'm successful I'll be capped at what my maximum income would be. And so then I I was uh, I was waiting tables. I'm like, oh maybe I'll be a waiter. And sort of the same thing happened to me. I just sort of saw 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 a maximum. And then I uh, then honestly I wasn't sure I knew other than the fact that I needed to uh, I needed to go to college. And I I kind of thought I was going to. It, maybe that that dream in the back of my mind is I I'd uh, create some game that uh, people would play, you know, so, uh, some online video game or or online uh, interesting uh, program that lots of people would play, and, and and that would be where I'd be going. So I wasn't really sure, but I realized I needed to uh, I needed to get to college. And then what what was fascinating for me, or or for, when I look back in respect. Is that when I when I went to school I, I I went to the University of Miami and I started in um, uh, international finance and marketing, and it turned out in my first semester that the classes on finance and marketing were so easy to me, and, and I also mm. thought in, in a big in the big picture I kind of thought to myself, well if I'm going to spend four years of my life focusing on educating me. I don't want it to be easy. I, I I want it to be more difficult. So I I found I knew I needed a business degree, and I found the the hardest program in the business school, uh, which was uh, deterministic, stochastic and deterministic models of operational research, which was taught mm. primarily through the industrial engineering group. And so I, I took that only because I realized, hey, if I'm going to dedicate myself to learning, I must well learn and grow and do the best I can. It's surprising to me how much of the operational research, the quantitative and qualitative analysis that I've used throughout my life. So that's been kind of an interesting, uh, you know, it's it's fun to think the, 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 the turns that people take and sort yes. of coincidences <laughs> that make us go one direction versus another. Oh, it's it's absolutely phenomenal. I was listening to you, and we had a guest on. She's a best-selling author, and uh, she, what did you want to do? She said being a writer was never on her radar, and it was the way she, the different things she wanted to do happened similarly to what you said. You wait, do waiting, you take some pictures, and somehow you end up where you where you end up. Now, how old were you, Mitchell? You've launched several companies. How old were you when you launched your first company, and what line of business did that first company operate in? It's a great, it's a great question, and I have to, I have to. By the way, I, I, I should have prepared for that question ahead of time. Um, I after college, I went to B school. Um, in B school, I after that, I went to corporations for 13, 14 years. Um, one, of the, one of the things that I did with, within that when I was still working for corporations is I actually self-published my first book. And I guess you could say that's probably my first company. I don't think a paper route. I did that when I was in high school. I don't think that's your first company. So I, I would say when I self-published my first book, that would be my first uh, Company and I had I had you know the same grandiose expectations that any uh, any author or self published author um, has, 
And that book was called Home Ownership, the American Myth, and it explored renting versus owning. And, uh, you know, I, I spent the, – the good news is my, my, uh, my sponsor, my financial sponsor, was my company. So I, I still had a job. I just spent some of my extra time. And so, you know, we were written up in uh, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, and it was, uh, it, it was a lot of fun And because I was giving a message that the industry didn't want to hear. So uh, being written up in those locations wasn't necessarily written up in a good way <laughs> because <laughs> if, if I said you should rent versus buy versus own, the people who were part of the industry would, you know, just say, hey, don't read this book, it's stupid, right? And so uh, – but the good news, I think, is uh, press is press. And, and so that was probably my first uh, – I'm not sure I would call that quote-unquote. I mean, I look back and I check the first real company, but that was my first company. So I, okay. I went all, okay. through all the paperwork to, to make that happen and, and so on. Yeah, it's a business. I'm sure the IRS would see it that way. It is a business. I was speaking with some um, – some analysts the other day, and it's kind of funny, and they were telling me that most businesses fail, and everybody knows that, one of the guys said. And I said, even in today's digital world, I would think it would be a lot easier. He said, it is easier to start a business today generally than what it was, let's say, 30, 40 years ago, or maybe 40, 50 years ago. He said, but it's still very difficult to get market share. So when you're saying you've been written up in Wall Street Journal and these places, you know, you could be an author or whatever your business is, and you you get on television, you're on radio, you're in magazines and newspapers, and you're wondering where to sell. It doesn't – you have to keep – there are people who are so entrenched in the market what you do. He said you either got to come up with an idea that nobody's ever thought of before, like the Mac or Apple or the iPhone or – You've got to come up with something nobody's ever thought of, and even then it's going to be, take a lot of work to push it out to the public. Or you've got to have some deep wallets, <laughs> pockets, to get get your product out there so much that you start to chip away and get a share of it. Amazon, Jeff Bezos, he kept that word Amazon in front of people. You couldn't hardly go anywhere on the Internet and not see Amazon for five years. It was all over the place. I don't know what he spent to do that, but it sure paid off for him. But um, you see that, I mean, because you got Barnes and Nobles and Borders and your local bookstores, so, they were like the... Yeah, Roger, the, the, there's an interesting aspect there. By the way, I, I got the chance to, when I was still working for some microsystems, I was, I was working with a nonprofit called CommerceNet, and we put on a conference. I was responsible for the marketing side of that. And I had asked Jeff, Be- Jeff Bezos to come and speak at the conference in 1996. So I got to get some alone time with Jeff before before Amazon was known as Amazon. Um, and it was great to see his vision back there. And he's he's gone. Uh, he actually has executed his vision. Uh, there are areas he's gone beyond, but he's he's pretty amazing. But let me let me poke a quick hole in. in it's sort of the thought process. And, and the thought process that many entrepreneurs have is I want to build something and I want to get a large market share. I want to be the next and you, you fill in the blank. Now, when you start a business, you have a choice. You have a choice to do one of three things. You have a choice to create a leisure business. You have a choice to be able to create a business that 
has some sort of quick hit, so you sell it in three, five, ten years, or you have a choice to change the world. The approach to the marketplace, so Bezos' approach to the change the world is significantly different than the leisure business would have. And you don't need to get market share or significant market share if you're creating a leisure business or even if you're creating a quick hit business. And so it's the your go-to-market strategy, the what you do and how you do it will differ. You know, if, if you're doing a service that is only relevant for your geographic, your small geographic community or your small vertical community, it's a lot easier to get penetration because you're defining the market you're going after as a smaller market than the world market or the, or the U.S. market. Does that make sense? Yes, yes, yes. And that, you know what? I can. T- that's why I've often heard people say, even if you're you're going to you want to go global in scale or or national, start regionally. And you you see more ads start even even pushing. First, it was national. And I hear what you're saying, but you hear you also see more companies saying you need to have some be entrenched locally as well. And I've seen major companies do that. They're international. Their name is widely known. You hear it on TV all the time, but they they're starting to penetrate more locally and establishing those one-on-one face through their sales staff relationships with local well, business owners. I think I think Rhonda, you that's, probably that's, need. Well, that's definitely that's the right way. By the way, the way the world is today, there are so many megaphones and so many microphones and so many opportunities for everybody to shout. The question we have in terms of what, what product or service we buy, we go, to, we go to who somebody we know, like, and trust, and we say, what would you do in my situation? I call those guys aha leaders. We go to our own personal curators. So if you liked how I talked and you remembered that I did something interesting, Rhonda, you've got access to my contact information. You're going to reach out and say, hey, Mitchell, I'm, I'm now deploying blah, blah, blah. Can you help me? And and I would say, well, what do you want to do? How do you want to do it? And then I'd give you some ideas. And you would, you would accept my opinion because I'm giving it to you not out of a vested interest of making money. I'm doing something. It's because I care about you being successful. And what companies, and not all of them, most of them don't get this yet, they don't recognize what you just said, that you need to have local experts, a local market, a local community that gets at gets excited about and advocates for your product because it, at the end of the day, it happens at the, you know, the, 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 the war we're fighting for mindshare, for awareness, for usage, happens at the individual level. Mm-hmm. Now, now, Mitchell, are markets changing? Some people say technology is causing things to change a little too fast. Uh, would you say that markets are changing faster now than at any other time? And, and what do you think, other than technology, because there's something that has to be other than technology, what do you think is driving this, this rapid change? We want change so quick, even though humans have difficulty adjusting to change, it's coming at such a rapid speed. You come out with a product today, and within two years it's obsolete. <laughs> <laughs> it it happens. Um it's a very interesting question, and I try, I'm trying in my mind to give it, give it ample thoughts because you said other than technology. And I think the way you have to answer your question 
is there was a point in time where we as society lived as an agricultural society. We, we ate what we grew or what we killed. And that was, and, and we all sort of had our own farmsteads. We ended up building towns so we could sort of support and look at each other. A significant transformation to the U.S. was railroads and was horse and buggy and Wells Fargo uh, communicating letters and communication across. Then all of a sudden we hit this industrial revolution. And what happened is the farms started becoming less important and cities started growing where we would build more and more products of mass consumption. Now, many people say when the, when the Internet, or more importantly, when the web came into bearing, that we entered the industrial, I mean, the Internet society. What I'll say to you is we're making, we're in the midst of the transformation. I would say we're, we're three or five stages into the midst of the, trans, the transformation into the, industri, into the Internet society. And the Internet society, if you look forward 100 years, will, we today will look as archaic as you can imagine somebody would live if they were living on a farm and their mode of transportation was horse and buggy. And it's just the, the societal factors that, that have bring this into place is our capability and, the, and what technology, whether or not the technology was a horse and buggy, you know, horsepower, or the automobile, Ford, or the train, or the, you know, we keep moving. The, the technology now is information. And we, we're, we're starting to see some of the benefits. We're starting to see some of the, the negatives. Uh, but we, we haven't quite begun to, to see it all. And a, and a good example, something to think about, um, we, we all hear about driverless cars and all that. The, the thing, whether or not it's 20 years from now or 10 years from now or 30 years from now, we are going to look back at 2017 and before, and we're going to say how archaic of a society did we live in that we allowed humans to get behind the wheel. <laughs> That's a really interesting concept. Right? At some point in time, we have to say that. When we start proving that the accidents are significantly less, and more importantly for business, that the productivity is significantly more. So what happens to the 3.4 million truck drivers? What happens to all of the people who, bu who drive buses today? We already know what's happening to people who drive taxis. We don't know what happens to the people who drive Ubers who then become obsolete because the Uber cars drive themselves. So what happens is we now have, just in that particular part of the world, we have all these people who make money because they stand behind the wheel and they drive. So what are they going to do instead? Now, I'll make a proposal. One of the things they could do is maybe you still keep those people in the car, but they're not driving anymore. They're your concierge service. They support whatever it is you're doing. All right? So if it's a bus, it's, say, let's make it a party bus. If it's, uh, it's the limousine, how, how cool would it be to get somebody who can mentor you or support you in whatever business activity you have going on? So it, it, it turns out that we have to now think about what, if, if you say 20 years from now, we will have driverless vehicles, well, what opportunity could you create today that will take advantage of that happening in the future?
Uh, very interesting, which leads into my next question. I wanted to ask you, as we become more focused on your on your company itself, what's the inspiration? You 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 started out okay. You had to go to college. What did you want to do in college? You wanted to be challenged, and so you went down the business path. What's the inspiration behind the aha concept? What what caused you to kick that off? There are two elements that were part of my life that caused me to create it. And for those that are listening, you can go to ahathat.com. And, and that's probably a better website than mitchellleview.com to go to. So it's just ahathat.com. And there are two things that, that came to me. When I started looking at what I did in my work career when I was working for companies, and then post when I, I've been working for myself in a number of different roles since 1997. And when I started looking at what I do, what I, what I really do is I help put a framework in, in the hands of the person who is looking at the world in a different way. For instance, if you buy the concept, if you happen to be in the automotive industry or the transportation industry and you buy my concept that 20 years from now, we're going to think it's archaic to be behind the car, that's a framework. Now you have to say, how do you take advantage of that framework? So one thing I used to always do and still do is I try to create, I used to call it turning the light bulb on, helping somebody see the world in a different way. I now call them aha moments. So I've always been excited about generating that, that aha moment, that, that opportunity where somebody goes, aha, I see your point of view. They may not agree with it, which is perfectly fine, but I see it does go this way. That's one approach. I can do the following. Or more importantly, oh, I can see what I've been doing in the past, and I can see how if I focus my, in, my energy in a different way, how I might be able to be more effective. So that's what I like. That during the dot-com days, I was an e-commerce management consultant. I was going into corporations, helping the C staff of corporations figure out how to use the Internet for business. And I can't even tell you how many large companies said, oh, we're never going to do uh, transactions over the Internet. And, of course, you know, my response was, well, this is true. Really, this is true. And, and uh, obviously my response was, well, if you don't, guess who is and guess what will happen to you um, if you don't. Yeah. The second thing that got me thinking about this and, and my inspiration is I've been lucky enough to – when I keep up with trends and watch what's going on and see where people are going, I've been lucky enough to spot trends ahead of time. And so the, one of the trends that I spotted was the e-commerce piece. So that's why I left corporate, corporate world started a consulting company. And so I was Mr. E-commerce during the dot-com days. Uh, another trend was the democratization of book publishing. And so that's when I entered that, that, that realm. It's 2005 is helping uh, business people publish your books with the expectation that if you publish your book, you're the expert. If you're the expert, you're going to get business. And so what I've been able to do now with AHA That is I've just really shortened the cycle of what it takes for somebody to demonstrate they're the expert so they can spend their energy on the important stuff, not the writing of the book, but the marketing of them so that they can get the market share that they need for their business to be successful. Ah, you know, that kind of leads into my next question. I was going to ask you, 
do you recommend that business owners write ebooks? And some companies will hire freelance writers to do this for them as a branding and a marketing strategy. And why? Why? Okay, so if you say yes, that you recommend business owners write ebooks as a branding and marketing strategy. A business owner could say, well, I attend conferences and seminars and they attract thousands of people. Plus, I'm very active on social media. Would that not be sufficient? How could writing ebooks trump even that? <laughs> well, I would, I would say, uh, ebooks are significantly important for a particular purpose. And what is as important, or in, in depending on who your audience is and who you're going after, uh, having a paperback or hardcover book is significantly important. But I, I look at those things, and I'm happy to cover all of them. I look at I look at those things differently than maybe most of the world. I I look at what I'm going to uh, client that could be a, a bigger, significant client for me, or if I'm going to somebody who I really want to change their mind, they're skeptical about social media and they're skeptical about ebooks. I take out one of the hardcover books that I wrote that I might have written in eight hours or less. I give them the hardcover book and I say, What do you think of this? You, do you like the quality? What about the content? Does it move you in any way? Give that book one minute of reading. And tell me what you think. And then I'll say, turn a page, you know, whatever the page is. Turn a page 59, read that one aha moment. And I'll give you one of my, one of my, uh, my, my favorite aha moments from the book, which is, is my fun book. The URL is aha.pub slash aha. And, and I'll say, here's, here's my favorite, and that book is the why you should write an aha book. And, and the, my favorite aha moment is, we live in a seven-second soundbite economy. Make it count. Mm. Right? Yeah. It's hard. It's hard to when you process that. You go, oh, yeah. If you don't capture mm-hmm. some, some people say three seconds or four seconds, but you don't capture somebody's attention immediately, they're right. gonna go away. Yes. Why? Because yes. they have a lot of choice to go away. Yes. And so, yes. so, so anyhow, so let's go back to your question. So I, I meandered a little bit. Um. Social media is great. It's so funny. I'm at a three-day retreat. Now, I, my people scheduled this right in the middle, so as soon as we're done, I've got to go back to the retreat. Um, <laughs> um, so I'm at a three-day retreat, and I'm talking to somebody who is a farmer's daughter yesterday. And, and she used some analogy that I just didn't buy into, and then I came up with another one that I absolutely love. Okay, you ready? So here's, here's, here's what she said. This is a farmer's daughter. And, and, and what we ultimately came to was the following. Using social media is like throwing seeds on the ground and not necessarily watering. Sometimes it grows, sometimes it doesn't, okay? Creating a website or putting an e-book or creating a physical book is like planting sod. Uh. Right? You, you want your home to look good? You want it to look good great and immediately? You plant sod. If you, as an expert, want to demonstrate that you're an expert, A, you have to have a good website. B, you have to have a reasonable presence in social media. And C, if you're the expert, you have, by definition, written a book in the space. And it doesn't matter, in my mind, if it took you 1,000 hours, 100 hours, or in my case, 
we allow authors to write their books in eight hours or less, or we even have a new special offer where somebody on the team could interview you for two hours and ghostwrite your book. Oh, okay. And I have to tell you, when, you, when you've spent eight hours, and I've got a number of authors. We've had 300 authors write their books in eight hours or less. So when you spend eight hours writing a book and you, you put it into play, and all of a sudden you get business, you're like, oh, I get it. And that's when you get the importance. Um, to specifically address your question on ebooks, the primary reason you do an ebook is to it's it's your lead magnet, it's your lead candy. You do ebooks when you have the interest in collecting somebody's email address, so you can then market to them. And that uh, is the okay. best vehicle for that. That is the primary reason why you you do ebooks is. It's just a lead magnet. You put it on your site. You do some advertising. You could use you could use uh, uh, Facebook and other places to social media to advertise that ebook. And when people get to the website to pick up the ebook, they say, "Oh, it's free here, but just give us your email address." Yes, yes. And so you know, it HubSpot, is not free. It's, yep. it's you know you get it. HubSpot is good at that. Now they'll do a PDF, like you said, a short ebook. Get get come get the guide on this is how this could benefit you as a business owner. Then they, they focus on the people who are marketers. That's their audience, and download. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> HubSpot yeah, and Marketo completely changed what is called an ebook because these guys put together a thirty-page PowerPoint and they call it an ebook, and the world says okay. So guess what, audience? An ebook can be as little as a thirty-page PowerPoint. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> so, can you? Yeah. Sorry. Can you explain <laughs> to our our listeners what what is crowdsourcing? You cover a lot of things from your your different books, and then I want to ask you uh, after we talk about crowdsourcing, I wanted to ask you how can an author who's interested in working with you uh, get the, get that process started. But first, oh, can you explain what crowdsourcing, crowdsourcing is? Uh, interesting. So the, the, the easiest definition of crowdsourcing um, from a content perspective is asking other people to help contribute to your book. So you've seen anthology books where people come to you and say, hey, pay, pay a little bit of money here or pay 1000 or $3,000 and you'll be, you'll be one of the authors, uh, you'll have a chapter in this book and and uh, you can then uh, say your best-selling book because we'll make it a bestseller. That's one example of, of crowdsourcing. Uh, one that I've done, and I've, I can't remember how many, I've, I've created at least 50 uh, crowdsourcing-type books. And one that I've done, I've done way back when is, uh, I can't remember which election it was, but when, when uh, Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama were both potential candidates, oh, okay. I, did, mm-hmm. I did a book. Is America ready for a female or an African American president? And and so a, a lot of people responded, and that was a book. It was their responses, positive or negative, ah, of whether or not America is okay, ready for okay. this. Right. And so it's uh, think of it as if you have a really good Facebook presence, and you ask a question, and you get a lot of responses. If you took those responses and created an ebook out of it, that would be a crowdsourced ebook. And, and uh, by the okay. way, if you do take that approach, the only thing I'd recommend is when you start your post, at the top of your post, you say, 
I am going to use copy edited and content edited content from this post for a book for an ebook I'm writing or for a book I'm writing. If you say that up front, you've at least protected yourself that people who have shared content recognize they may ultimately end up in the book. Okay, right. Yeah, and most people most people are honored to to be in, included until the until sometimes the, if the book really does take off, then they might come back and say, "Where's my cut?" <laughs> yeah, exactly. That, that, that's the that's the only thing. So for somebody who is interested. Can you tell us these aha? You've given us a few examples of the books. Are they about like the ghostwriting? Would it be about the CEO? Would would a writer be writing about a specific company to help market them? So a company comes to you, they want you to get an ebook published on their business so that they can use to market them. Is that what the writer would do? What's the specific type of ebook writing the writer would be doing? And how could a writer kickstart that process with you if they wanted to get involved? Let's start. <clears throat> Very nice question. Thank you. Let's start with a URL. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to give you a URL where we actually have a eight-step process on how on how to do the writing. And uh, and that URL is aha that a h a t h a t dot com slash author. And when you get to that page, you'll see videos on why write a book, why be part of Baja That. You'll see customer testimonials, and then you'll see the eight-step process. And Rhonda, if we have time at the end, I'm happy to go through the first three steps to, uh, if, you, if you're interested. But I, I do want to ask the answer the question of what do you write your book on? Okay. The the interesting part when I stand in front of a bunch of consultants, and I say I ask that same question to the group. Hey, what do you write your book on? And I, I say, I'm going to give you three choices. And, uh, and I, I got them prepped. I said, be ready, be thinking, let me know. And so here are the three choices. If you could, and by the way, let's imagine one thing. Whether or not you write it yourself in eight hours, which is kind of like snapping your fingers, or whether or not you spend two hours talking to somebody who records the conversation and then either my team or you, uh, as, as the person who's recording it, you write the aha book from there. Um, that's two hours. So, so those, that's kind of snapping your fingers to write a book. So if you could snap your fingers and write a book, which of the following three areas do you write your book on? So the first, do you write a book on what you're an expert in today? Two, do you write a book on what you get paid to do today? Or three, do you write a book on what you get paid to do tomorrow? Now, Rhonda, I'm happy to have you answer that question, and I'll tell you what the answers are from other people. If you want to take a stab at it, please do, but I won't be offended if you don't want to. Uh, I'm between, uh, I would say what you do tomorrow, but a little what you do today because what, that's what you're, and that's what you really know. That's what you really know. You know, I, I, I love your answer. Let me tell you why, but I'm going to, when we're done with this conversation, I'm hoping you flip it a little bit. So 80% of the people say that they're going to write a book on what they're expert in today. The reason why that's not necessarily a good answer is you know, let's say you have aging parents or aging grandparents, and they end up coming into the house, and they have ALS or Alzheimer's or Parkinson's, and you become an expert on how to take care of them. As a cathartic moment, you're going to want to write a book. 
And the question I'll ask is, although you may be the expert in that space and you've helped a family member be live their lives that much better, uh, do you want to do that to other people? Do you want to uh, open up a home or a service that helps solve that energy? Do you want your life tomorrow to be part of that? And, and if the answer is no, and in many cases it's not, I'm like, well, that's not the book you write. Um, many people say, so, yeah, right, you got it? <laughs> okay. 15% <laughs> of the people say they write a book on what they're expert in today. Now, it turns out that Nevada is, if you're an expert in something today, you get paid to do it today, and you get paid to do it tomorrow, that's what you, you know, if you're living in that world, you're, you're a happy, happy person. The 5%, the enlightened 5%, and this is where you originally went, but then you couched your, your decision. The enlightened 5% says, I'm going to write a book on what I get paid to do tomorrow. And it's really simple. Now, whether or not you write it because you've done research, you've done work, you may be slightly an expert, or why don't you go out and interview people who happen to be in that space and you include their content in your book. Well, guess what you've done? You've not only included good, compelling content, but you've also made friends along the journey of your book writing, and those, those new friends may also hire you. So you're opening up doors. So the reason you write a book, you got it, right? So the reason you write a book on what you want to do tomorrow is that, and it goes back to what we talked about at the beginning of the hour. If there's so many microphones and so many megaphones and so much crap out there, who do you listen to? Well, you listen to the person who's the recognized expert in this space who you happen to know, like, and trust. So, if you wrote a book that addresses the pain that your potential clients have, all of a sudden they're going to see that you wrote a book on their pain. They're going to remember that you're the, guess what, you wrote the book, that you're the expert in the area. Yeah. And if you're the expert in the area, <laughs> and if you could do it in eight hours of time, or if you interview people, it will take you more than eight hours. But if you, do, if you interview people and you, you actually become reasonably good at this, um, as you start practicing your craft, you'll get better and better. But you're the expert because you wrote the book. You know, and that is, that is, that is true. And a lot of books, um, particularly, it's, it's interesting when you say that. Uh, but my grandfather told me years ago, once you write a book, and I don't know if it's as, I don't know if writing a book carries as much weight today as it used to because it seems like everybody is writing a book. But years ago, if you told somebody you wrote a book, I mean, their eyes would just open up. You were immediately, you didn't have to say anything else about yourself. You were just seen somehow as just very brilliant just because you wrote a book. It's, it's, it's surprisingly, Rhonda, since I started publishing in 2005, everyone's told me that concept's going to go away. And guess what? It hasn't. I've written 50, now 58 books, and people go, 58 books? Holy cow. What are you writing on? And I go, what's interesting to you? And, and, or if I, typically I'll know somebody ahead of time, or I wrote a book on this topic. What do you think about that? Um, and so let me, let me talk a little bit about what's interesting about the AHA Lab platform is the trend that I saw was where we are today, and that is we need to be able to write books quickly to demonstrate our expertise. So that's really, you know, the, the business author's dilemma is threefold. How do you write a book quickly 
so you can get yourself out there and be recognized as that expert author. How do you make sure it gets shared? That was one of the pain points I had as a publisher. Authors who spent so much time writing their books, and then once it was published, they didn't tell anybody about it. Uh, just so you know, 90% of the success of a book is what you do after you're done writing. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, so the author's dilemma, how do you write it quickly, number one? How do you make sure it gets shared, number two? And number three, how do you use your book to close business? So I've mm. solved two of the three. Our books are called AHA books. They're social media-enabled e-books. So an AHA book is comprised of 140 bite-sized quotes, similar to the one I said before, which is we live in a seven-second soundbite economy, make it count. So by definition, you can now write your book quickly, and it sits on the platform that there are buttons underneath each one of those quotes, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, Google+. So not only can you share your content on social media, your fans, because every author gets their own customized URL, your fans can share that content. And we currently have a little over 700,000 users. They're looking for content. So if you go to ahadat.com, it is free to use, free to share. We have 38,000 quotes that are available for you to share on social media of some very cool authors with some really fun things to say. And guess what? You don't need in social media to continually be the originator of good, compelling content. If you share other people's content, so, you know, even if we, uh, we have some books from uh, Einstein and Sun Tzu, The Art of War, we, we recently did The Wizard of Oz and Pride and Prejudice, and there's some really cool quotes in there. And if you share them with your, plat- your, your people, your tribe, they actually enjoy that content, and guess what? They don't, need, they don't know that it only took you seconds to find it and share it. Uh, you, you know, I wanted to ask you a little bit about the uh, thought leaders and then your, your business during the dot-com period. My first question is, um, with, with, with about 15 minutes to go in today's show, do, do you, do thought leaders, from based on your experience and your research, do thought leaders, do they exhibit specific signs? Because we're definitely living in an in a information age and just working hard manual labor it's not going to net you. It's not going to net people what it used to. Be. So you can work hard, do a lot of hard physical labor. Years ago, you might could go up in a manufacturing company or or, or, or another industry. That that's kind of going away. The people who are really <coughs> having influence, they are the ones that 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 ideal that can work. They know how to start to work it, and they have it early. They had it early. Do do people who exhibit these, they cannot just have an idea, but they can make it work. Do they do they exhibit specific signs? Have you seen specific signs in people who do this? Probably the. Yeah, no, it's a great question. Um, probably the the into so so first let's go back to the fact that. There is, there is now a transformation of what the word thought leader really means, right? Because in the past, as part of the Industrial Revolution, when book publishers, used, book publishers used to clone thought leaders, they would take a guy like Peter Drucker or Tom Peters, and they, they'd publish their books. They would spend a quarter million or a half million dollars marketing their books. 
And that would be the person to listen to, and, and or Anthony Robbins, although Anthony did a lot of it. Tony did a lot of stuff himself. The, the interesting part is they would go out there, they would speak, and you as their flock need to listen. Right? And so they'd say jump, and you go how high. And actually, Tony says, walk and calls, and you say okay. Right? So the interesting part there is that's the way the thought leader used to be. There'll still be some of those. But the newer thought leader is a person who is known, liked, and trusted by their tribe. So it could be somebody in a very local community that you know, um, you know, somebody like yourself who's running a radio show. You've had uh, followers for up to 13 different years who know you, like you, and trust you. If you say, hey, I like this new platform, or I like this new product, or I like this new service. Well, why do they, why, why do they listen to you? Well, they like your general nature. They like your tone. They like your friendliness. They like your uh, transparency, your trustworthiness, your authenticity. Um, they like you uh, in this retreat. I'll give you two words which are new for me. Uh, for me, they like my aliveness. They like my joy. They like the fact that I look for aha moments in almost everything I do and anyone I interact with. And so the reason why or the reason for all of those words that I just mentioned are all values that we look for today in what we would call, I, I call them aha leaders versus thought leaders, because what we look for today is not just that thought leader sitting on a pedestal, we're looking for that personal curator who can help us because we now have access to, with the Internet, you have access to anybody. Now, maybe you don't get access to Tony Robbins, but what if somebody trained with Tony Robbins for so many years and they've opened their own business? You have access to that person. Uh, what happens if there's a complementary or competitive component uh, to Tony Robbins? You may have access to those people. Um, you, so, and that's, or what happens if somebody has studied not just Tony, but 20 other motivational speakers, and they're saying, hey, I've studied all these guys, and it could be somebody right around the corner from you. That's now your personal curator. That's now your, uh, in the old days, thought leader in my, in my vernacular, you're now aha leader. Does that make sense? Yes, yes, it does. And then it's also like uh, that that forward that forward thinking. Tony is very good. One thing he does use, I don't see a lot of business leaders using it. He relies on emotion a lot as well. He he, get, he does oh, he uses right. a lot of ministers. A lot of ministers use that tool. Um, if I can just get you revved up enough. Um, but he's, he's done studies where where that has worked. My computer, believe it or not, just, it actually just crashed on me for the first time ever. Oh, no. I just off the shelf. So I don't have access to my questions uh, right now. Uh, but I know we, we, I have. We, uh, we, got ten, we got 10 minutes. We'll be fine. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I've got. I, so, you know, I've had to do things. This is one thing I, I always tell our our listeners here at Off the Shelf. You have to be ready for anything. I, I, you, you have to be ready for anything. I, I remember reading a book, and this is something that kind of can segue into what you do. You started out 
not knowing exactly what you were going to do. Uh, you said you started with a paper route, and then you went in again to the photography. Were you going to wait on tables, and you had to be challenged enough? Uh, um, uh, but but no, the you need you need enough you need enough challenge. Although we often seek after comfort. We often seek after comfort. Uh, we, 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 we often try to get to our comfort zone. Um, and uh, what I have to say is uh, there are different points in life where you actually want to put yourself in your uncomfort zone um, because that's important. Uh, I would say uh, to answer your question or your thought process on Tony Robbins, what's fascinating about the old school thought leaders is they're all business folks. And we as individuals, we process information in three ways, auditory, visual, and kinesthetic. And if you're in business, touchy-feely kinesthetic stuff, that is, that is taboo topic. So when you look at your thought leaders that you know, like, and trust, those that are really big and known, tell me if you think they present to the world visually or auditorily. Because what you told me is Tony Robbins presents to the world kinesthetically. Yeah. And he was one of the first to go out there and do that. And so that's really – now, here's what's cool about, if you don't mind me jumping back to AHA That, what's really cool about AHA That, you can create a book where every one of your or a handful of your AHA messages, any one of them can include a URL. That URL can point to either an ebook, which is lead candy for something like we talked about earlier. It could point to – uh, YouTube or Vimeo with a video. Um, it could point to uh, SlideShare or it could point to your website or it could point to your book on Amazon. If you actually have an existing book, an AHA book is a social media marketing for your book. Now, so, but when did, if you point to... Oh, no, go ahead. I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, if you, point to Vimeo, if you point to video, you can create one-minute videos that sort of cap, encapsulate your kinesthetic view of the world and you can now create a, uh, a series of social media content that points to your videos that allow your current and future tribe to really understand who you are and relate to you. And that, I think, now is once, what's really cool. Once somebody gets, does an aha book, do they own that material, though? So let's say they, they, they whatever the process is, they, they pay – you to get whatever the template they get it get it started, and they have their own URL. Do they own the material so they can take this book and use it, however they 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 want to use it themselves to continue their marketing? So yes, with a tiny caveat. So copyrights owned by the author. Um, and so what we do is is we allow people. The Aha book is just a social media enabled ebook, uh, and we actually charge four hundred and fifty dollars for that. For those that want to go to the next level up, we'll take that AHA book. And, and by the way, for 450, we'll do a cover design, a copy edit, a content edit. Um, essentially, it's, four, it's 140 bite-sized quotes that are then shared on social. Next level up is for 950. We'll actually create a PDF. So uh, obviously, that's your now ebook, which is a lead magnet. And we'll put your book on Kindle. Now, when you're on AHA that, uh, there's no revenue model there, so there's no opportunity to make money back. It's really about what you as an author, a business author in particular, are using your book for. 
and that is to drive more awareness, to drive sales of you as a consultant, as a speaker, or products or services. Once we get on Kindle or the following level, we turn your book into paperback and hardcover. Once we do that and there's a potential to sell your book and make money back, uh, authors in our platform make 51% of profit. So it's, oh, okay. it's, it's your book, right? It's not only 100% your copyright. You get 51% of profit because it's your book. And we, want, we wanted people to feel like it's, it's their stuff. And so it's, uh, we, I thought that was about as fair of a model as we can create. No, and if you do go through most, uh, I would say not publishers, but distributors, uh, they they do off the top take about fifty fifty five percent. A distributor though, a distributor is different than a publisher for 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 our listeners. Yeah, well, in, this, in that particular case, no, no, but in that particular case, if for instance we are sharing your book, so if we share your hardcover book through a distributor, yeah, we have to give them the fifty five percent. So what's left over is profit, and what's left over mm-hmm. for profit, that is what the author gets, the 51% of that. Let me ask you before we close, for those who uh, you raised a lot of good points, and I thank you for everything that you shared. Maybe somebody is at a crossroads right now, and like we, we were saying, there's, change is coming at such a rapid pace. It's, you, still have, you still have people who want to hold on. To the way things used to be, and every generation is going to see that struggle where people just don't want things. How can we get them to go back? There's people I think want to go back to the 1950s, and if you can't tell, get them to see that it's gone. It's never coming back. <laughs> it, 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 it don't, that would be it, good, by the way. If you, back. if you get if you can get people to see that, that would be a really phenomenal thing. Agreed. <laughs> And and so the, the, the not wanting change uh, socially in business, the way people manage business. Some people have trouble with telecommuting. They just didn't grow up that way, and they have a lot of problems with it. So if somebody's at a crossroads, what would you say to someone, and, and they're thinking, what do I do now? You've made those choices in your own life, serving uh, uh, on a publicly owned company to starting your own business. What would you say to somebody who they feel like I'm at a crossroads and I've got to make a choice and it's really going to impact the rest of my life? Do I seek after comfort? Do I do I continue to work this job that I'm sure to get paid and the company is doing well, or do I go in this other more challenging? I don't know what's going to come of it. Direction that I feel like I'm pulled to go in. What advice? What advice would you give somebody struggling? dealing with that so many people choose the perfect conference. well happy happy to share and then give me give me a minute or two at the end so i can make an offer if you don't mind um the what i would say if you have a job today and you're getting paid call that job your financial sponsor and do not leave your financial sponsor until you really know where you're going and what you're heading now if you have a financial sponsor that financial sponsor doesn't own 100% of your time. If you're working 30 hours a week, 40 hours a week, 50, 60, 70, it's only when you get to 80 hours a week that you don't have any spare time. If you have an extra couple hours or 10 hours a week, start playing with and taking, let's say, a hobby you have or something that you do today that you might be able to make money on or you go to somebody else who, who's experimenting who makes an offer, 
spend a couple of hours, whatever time you get carb every week to start doing that other thing. And if it turns out that that other thing doesn't work out, great, move to another one. If it turns out that it works out, now you have opportunities to make a decision where you're not sitting there hoping that the next paycheck comes in the door, right? So keep your financial sponsor and experiment with other things that will go with your, keep your comfort zone of money and go with the uncomfort zone of what you're going to do and make sure you spend enough time every week to experiment with it. Okay. Excellent advice. Did you have any last thoughts or words you wanted to leave with our off-the-shelf listeners? Because we've come down to the end of of today's show. So I – I'm, I've made a new offer that's a result of being on uh, being in this retreat. And the offer is simply if you want to spend time with me, normally if you're spending time with me and I'm ghostwriting an AHA book, uh, we're going to charge $2,750. If you want to spend a half hour with me, and I will guarantee that you'll get at least three AHA messages that you would be able to share with your audience, um, we normally would price that at 297 And what I want to do is I'll give you a coupon code that we created for this thing. And for a very short period of time, well, we're, we're actually not going to even give that at 197 We're going to make that offer for $97. So if you go to the URL, ahathat, dot com, I want three. So the letter I, the word wants, and the number three. I want three. It'll bring you to our webpage. It'll give you a price point of $297. And you put in the coupon code, capital S, capital K, zero one. So capital S, capital K, zero one. It'll bring the price point down from 297 to 97. And you'll be able to schedule a half hour with me. And, and like I said, I will guarantee that you'll have at least three aha messages that you'll be able to share with your audience by the time we're done with our half hour conversation. And I'd love to talk to okay. you. I'm looking forward to it. Oh, so that's a $200 savings for our off-the-shelf listeners. Well, we want to thank thank you, Mitchell Levy, the author of the AHA Moment. He's written, he himself and the authors he's worked with have written well over 100, 100 books. So we want to thank him for taking time out of his schedule. He's, that he's at a seminar right now, so let him get back to his uh, attendees, to seminar attendees. But we want to thank him, and we want to encourage our listeners, as I always tell you, you are awesome, you're amazing. Go out and create a fabulous day for yourself. Remember, you can either connect with Mitchell Levy at his website, MitchellLevyLevy.com, or Aha That. A-H-A-T-H-A-T dot com, and you can take advantage of the special that he just shared with us. If you came in on the show midstream, after it finishes streaming, you can go back and listen to the show in its entirety, and I do encourage you to pop over and visit Aha That or Mitchell Levy dot com. Thank you, thank you, Mitchell. Uh, please, to all off-the-shelf listeners, come back next Saturday, 11 a.m., Eastern Standard Time, and we will bring you another phenomenal guest. Mitchell, I'll shoot you an email. Bye for now. Bye for now. Thank you.